We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. I'm delighted to be joined this week by the Right Reverend David Wilborn to talk about his new book, Just John, the authorised biography of John Habgood, Archbishop of York, 1983 to 1995. It's published by SPCK and is available for a special price of £16 from the Church Times bookshop. Uh, Bishop David, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you, good to see you. Can I just start by asking about your own association with, with John Habgood? You knew him perhaps better than most biographers know their subject. Yeah, he became Archbishop in 1983. I was newly ordained and I've been watching him ever since, really. He, he was a, a scientist and I'm interested in the sciences. And then I became his chaplain in 1991 until he retired in 1995 and have kept in touch until the year he died, which was last year. I mean, quite a privileged background. He, he attended Eton, um, a bit like our current Archbishop. Yes, his father was a doctor and I think it was the tradition to, to go for public school and he managed to, to get a place at Eton. I think it was a, you know, it was quite a sort of subsidised place for him and he just, Eton was a place where he was able to, to flourish and do the subjects he enjoyed and really take the lead in them. It really comes through in the biography, I mean, how extraordinarily bright he was, his, his intellect. But I don't think he was a scholar at Eton, was he? No, he didn't win the scholarship. I think there was some mix-up with the exams and he hadn't done the necessary Greek or something, which was big in those days. Um, and so I, I think it was a favour. I think the sort of matron at one of the houses was a distant relative. And so they took him in. It was the, the roughest house at Eton. And, and John was not a rough boy by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he sort of got through to the bullies and helped them with their homework. And so they were very fond of him in the end. <laughs> and then, um, and I, I know in the book you, you talk to Archbishop Welby, um, I mean, about John generally, but also specifically about their different experiences of Eton. Yes, I suppose Eton is a place that models people for leadership and both, both Justin and John benefited from that. And, and Justin Welby was incredibly helpful because I, I didn't go to Eton and so I knew nothing of it. And he was very good in giving me a, a really personal description of the place. Mm. I think there's a quote, he, I can't quite find it, but he says about the two different extremes of people, <laughs> I think, who, who come out of Eton. I think it was when he was at Cambridge and the boatman said, uh, the person at the boat, boathouse said, there's two sorts from Eton, either perfect gentlemen or absolute bastards. <laughs> and of course, Justin Welby and John Habgood belong to the a category. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and then, I mean, from Eton, John then went on to King's College, Cambridge, um, to study in the sciences. Yeah, and it was 1945, so everything was sort of rebooting again after war. So a bit of a parallel with the present lockdown, really. Everybody was coming back to Cambridge and they were firing things up again. And it was quite a mixed bag because you've got some people who'd won a place at Cambridge in 1939 and then taken six years 
out fighting in the war. And so it was dealing with people who probably were a bit rusty and people like John Hapgood who were very, very bright and ahead of the game. I find it very interesting, the book, um, where you talk about his his passion for science and his, his great knowledge of it. Um, could you say a bit about how that related to his, his own faith journey? Because I think he there was a period of scepticism, wasn't there? I think, was it at Cambridge or just before when he, when he really didn't decide he didn't believe? I think at Eton, he just got bored with religious studies and, um, you know, felt there were more exciting things for him to spend his time on. At Cambridge, he got he got very bored with playing whist and, 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 and one night instead went to a university mission where he was converted by an American evangelist big time and he became quite a fundamentalist for a year or two in, in the Christian Union, but then became uneasy with that and, and just broadened. So his conversion story has has parallels perhaps with Archbishop Welby, who I believe um, also came to faith at a um, Q mission. Yes, and you know I was at Cambridge and I went to Q missions and they were very, very good um, and, and, and very good at concentrating on the basics of faith. I think John Hubgood had been brought up in a, a Christian Church of England family and, and, you know, there they'd help the church and run garden faiths, etc., etc. And so he'd had that basic Christian Anglican upbringing, but it, it fired and refocused at Cambridge. Um, and there were some reservations he had with, with the Christian Union, whether by the time he sort of left Cambridge or in his later years there. I think he went to a meeting where they were, it was about evolution, and they were mocking Darwin, etc. And he felt rather than the people, you know, these were high flyers all attending the meeting, rather than laughing at the speaker, they were laughing with him. And that shocked him. He wrote a 15-page open letter, uh, 15 pages, tightly typed, criticising them. So after that, you really burnt your boats. And, and so, but he always claimed that it was, wasn't a conversion, that it was just a natural movement and that his moving to a more Anglo-Catholic aspect of Christianity was, was just, that's how it went. And being converted at Cambridge sort of broadened his interest in everything, the arts and sciences, etc. And I, th I think you mean you write about his intellectual integrity really and his um, conviction that Christian faith doesn't have to be in conflict with scientific findings or or the findings of critical scholarship. Yeah and again it's relevant now he, he would see science and faith as very close to each other and the scientist comes up with a hypothesis and then tests it out in the community and is normalized by the community and that's how, how faith works you know you, you go to church and check out what you're thinking about God with other how others are thinking and and so he saw a lot of parallels and, and wrote a lot about the connections between religion and science. His first and, um, book was uh, on religion and science, published by Mills and Boom, of all people. Um, not quite the bodice ripper, but very interesting. That's very interesting. Um, and, and he was a first-rate scientist. I mean, he had he not pursued the call to ordination, he could have had a um, significant scientific career in Cambridge or somewhere, could he? Yes, I suppose it was post-war and everything was up for grabs. And he did a PhD in physiology in, in sort of pain, really, and what happened to a wound after after an injury. And then he became a, tea, a pharmacology, a lecturer in pharmacology, even though he knew nothing about the subject. But there was not very much to know. So I think he read a page ahead of the doctors and lectured them. And I think you're talking about studying wounds and that the quote from Dennis Potter, the very famous quote about religion being the wound, which yeah, is something John Hab actually agreed with. Yeah that it was an interview um, and 
the interviewer said, isn't religion just a bandage round the wound? And Potter said, no, faith is the wound. And, and John Hapgood would see that. And so it was all one piece, really, is, is researching into wounds led him, I think, to deepen his faith because, you know, at the heart of Christianity is a wound on, on Good Friday. And so there are a lot of parallels there. And, and how did his um, discerning a call to ordination come about? I think it was a very different age. It was post-war and some terrible things had happened. And then there was a whole sort of fear of, of nuclear, nuclear annihilation. And whilst he thought teaching physiology and pharmacology was very important, he felt that in a, a sort of apocalyptic world, faith was more important and therefore he ought to give his life up to, to serving and promoting that. And this came as some surprise to his, to his scientific colleagues in Cambridge? Yes, and by then he'd become a fellow at King's, so that was quite a prestigious award. Uh, and so he was, as you say, he was, you know, the world was his, his oyster, really. It was a surprise to them. I think they felt that he would never leave his scientific interests and background, and boy, were they right there. Yes, indeed. And then when he was um, selected for ordination, he, he went to train at Cudston. How, how did he find that? I think, yeah, Cudston is a theological college about six or seven miles from Oxford. I think he found it rather parochial and quite frustrating. Um, but as so often happened, I was the director of ordinance and, and the bishop uh, working with ordinance. Usually they came alive with the placements and he came alive with placements. He had a placement in a, a psychiatric hospital, which was deeply moving and distressing. And also, oddly enough, he, he did a summer's mission up in this neck of the woods in the North York Moors, moving from village to village and um, having services in the evening and those sort of things fired him. I think that compassion he has really comes through the book, even that being in, in one level can seem quite remote and cerebral. He also had a very deep empathy for, for people who were suffering. Yes, I, I think he valued people telling him things as, as they were, as it is. He, he didn't like people pretending or lying. He couldn't deal with that. And if, you know, if they told him how they really felt, then he was very, very good with that. And clergy, if they were struggling, he was the best thing they could, could, could be helped by. And Sir John Habgood was ordained on Trinity Sunday, 13th of June, 1954, in St Paul's Cathedral. And he served his title at St Mary Abbott's Kensington. Yeah. Um, very well-known church. Um, I thought what, one of the most interesting parts of, of this in the book, I thought, was his friendship with Mrs Owen, Faith Owen, or, or Madre. <laughs> Um, she, had a, she had a significant influence on him. Yes, because he kept meticulous records and I had all the sort of box files and I suddenly came across all these letters between him and Madre and who is this, I thought. And it was just total coincidence. He'd, he'd found a, an advert in a newsagent's shop for a room. He was looking for a room when he was a curate and he, he chased this up and lo and behold, his landlady was the widow of the former Bishop of Lincoln um, and... She had such connections, um, including Michael Ramsey, who was then Archbishop of York and went on to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And all these people were coming and going. So I think he thought he found himself a quiet lodging, whereas actually most of the Church of England was being diverted through those rooms. And she thought the world of him uh, and thought he was marked for greatness and told everybody she knew he was marked for greatness. And I think she was a woman who, you know, even God would have jumped if <laughs> she'd given a command. And was this the time when his, his friendship started with, with Michael Ramsey, who was a frequent visitor? Yeah, that's right. And I think he always saw himself, because Michael Ramsey was Archbishop of York, 
John Habgood saw himself in succession to Michael. And Michael Ramsey was a diplomatical man, a massive theologian. And, and John just related to that very well. And I always thought there was a strong connection between the two. When Michael Ramsey retired, uh, one of his retirement homes was a flat at Bishopthorpe, and two got on so well. They're like father and son. And it seems after his, his curacy, I mean, his, his career sort of goes up a gear, doesn't it? He, he, he's appointed as he vice principal of Westcott House. Yes. Yeah, which are two years as well, only two years. And I think the principal sought him out. And even though the then vice principal wasn't thinking of leaving, and the then vice principal was Robert Runcie, of all people, um, <laughs> the principal decided that Robert Runcie was leaving and that John Habgood was to replace him. And um, the Westcott Council weren't quite in approval because John had no formal qualifications in theology. His degree and PhD were in science. And so I think the council felt they really ought to have a theologian, but um, Ken Carey, the principal, overruled them and said, oh, no, if he's good at one subject, he'll be good at another. End of. And what do you think he particularly saw in John that made him so convinced that he'd be right for Westcott? I think Ken Carey was another friend of Madre, and Madre told him in no uncertain terms to appoint him. And, and he trusted her. And uh, she was a massive person, and, you know, her husband had been a massive person, so... Um, they were, they were people to be trusted. I, I thought d during this time at Westcott, you uh, stood out to me at a sermon he preached where he talked about how priests should touch their people with no less than the power of Christ, principally by what they are rather than what they say, and learning to be quiet and reflect the leisure of eternity. Um, I thought it was interesting for someone who comes across as an incredibly hard worker in the book, but also speaks about, I think at one point, about the need for a certain laziness or leisureliness in order not, you know, in order not to be sort of overwhelmed. Yes, so, so don't don't just do something, sit there, sort of <laughs> turn around. <laughs> and yeah, I think he, he was wanting people to to have the nerve to pause. I, 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 you know, I was a parish priest for 21 years and you're very busy and often you feel you have to be busy and um, it's justification by works rather than grace. Whereas he at the very start told people, look, you need to pause and those people who hurry can actually thwart the work of God. Uh, and so it was a very strong part of his, his message. And he preached a lot at Westcott. I've got all his sermons and they were all massive. And he was setting people up for 40 years ministry, really. Sure. And by the time, um, I'll just find it. And he, and he really starts to get noticed during his time at Westcott, doesn't he, by the, the church hierarchy. I think you, you write that. By the end of his time there, he has about 10 job offers his for the <laughs> taking. Right. Yes, yes. I think the Bishop of Manchester said, anything you want in my diocese, you can have. <laughs> <laughs> Which was probably the best offer. But yeah, there was quite a, a lot of offers in cathedrals or theological colleges. But I think he felt very strongly that having taught clergy and launched them, he really ought to put into practice what he preached and, and go and be a parish priest himself. Uh, which is why he ended up in, in Jedburgh in the near the borders in Scotland. Yes, and then that was a very fruitful time for him. Um, also quite challenging, I suppose. Yeah, he just got married and all uh, three of his four children um, were born there. Um, and it was it was fruitful in many ways. He, he was a parish priest ahead of his time. He started having discussion groups in the 1960s, which, are, you know, everybody has them now, but it was a, a new thing then. And he didn't believe in the father knows best philosophy. 
but tried to get people to to own the ministry and be a part of the ministry and and was very upfront about that mm. and and from there he is sought out was he to be principal of queen's the queen's foundation birmingham yes again in 1967 a lot of jobs were swirling around including being dean of, of king's college cambridge which didn't come to anything uh, queen's looked like a job nobody would want because the college was failing and he he was very he didn't refuse to apply but in the end they sought him out and he was i think for that reason he had a sort of clean slate to do what he wanted with and immediately had discussions with the the principal of the nearby methodist college and decided they were going to unite end of and and so it was the first ecumenical college it was quite a wealthy college it had been endowed well um, but it was uh, endowment rich, student poor, and making ecumenical suddenly attracted people to it, and um, you know off they went. It was the 1960s, which was a heady time, and not only was it an ecumenical college, but it was a very sort of how would you put it? It wasn't quite a, a hippie college, but he he was very easy about discipline, and and all the staff were known on first name terms and week they had a council meeting and everybody could say whatever they wanted so it was I think he it wasn't a hippie colony I think he wanted it to be a family um, a theological college a family of formation for, for ministry in the church and was very keen on removing all the sort of rather boring discipline and rules and regulations and and, and enable people to be themselves and you talk about ecumenism there's a chapter in your book I think called ecumenical john is that right indeed, um, indeed. so was this where it really started his his commitment to ecumenism i think it probably happened in scotland uh, because of course the the anglican church in scotland is not established it's the church mm. of scotland and so he was he he, he it was not established and he worked with other denominations roman catholics and nonconformists and was very keen on on promoting that I think one Monday Thursday he decided he was just going to have a, a Eucharist where everybody could come and the, the Scottish bishop said no you can't do that uh, we can't permit it so he had a Eucharist where nobody received uh, which <laughs> got round the, the bishop's ban as it were but also enabled um, you know on the night our Lord died and prayed that his church might be one in Jedburgh that year it was one indeed um, and I mean things were going I think really well at Queens weren't they I think sort of six five or six years on and it, it looked from your book like he could have stayed there for some time but then he he gets a letter from receives a letter from Edward Heath the Prime Minister I know it's sort of suddenly across the horizon I think it was going well at Queens Queens was a flagship for ecumenism unfortunately talks on Methodist Anglican unity came to nothing so I think he felt he'd been left high and dry there but yes it was the days of um a letter landed from the a letter from the prime minister landed on the doormat and it was almost a command to go to durham he didn't want to go he felt he wanted a few more years in the college but um, various senior clergy persuaded him to go that he needed to it was comparatively young man then 46 um, that they needed him um, on the bench of bishops I think Michael Ramsey was one of those, was he, who persuaded him to go to Durham? Yeah, and Michael Ramsey was on the verge of retirement, so it'd be Michael Ramsey's last appointment, which was interesting, really, considering the connection between the two. But yes, Michael was very keen. The Archbishop of York, Donald Coggan, was very keen, and um, various other bishops sort of twisted John's arm. But I, it, 
you know, often when people are made a bishop, they say, oh, I never thought this would happen to me. I'm very reluctant, blah, 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 blah. You think, yeah, right. Um, and, and, you know, you sort of, Father Bishop's on his, or the prospective bishop is on his knees praying whether he should be a bishop or not. His wife is upstairs packing, uh, <laughs> as the tale goes. And But it wasn't like that. I think genuinely he, he didn't really want to go to Durham. He realised that Auckland Castle was an unmanageable place and, and felt that, you know, the family were very, very happy in Birmingham. And yes, you, you write about particularly um, his his wife Rosalie, is it her, from her perspective about Auckland Castle, and um, sort of a full time job just keeping it from sort of falling apart. That's right. So, so many rooms and eight hundred acres, and 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 it's quite you know to start with it's all rather thrilling, but then it wears them down because um, they didn't have formerly it had a you know big staff to run the place, but that had been much reduced, and they were running it on a shoestring and. You've got 800 acres of, of land to look after, as well as about 80 rooms. And um, yeah, it was. I think that he managed anything else other than being curator of Auckland Castle is a bit of a miracle, really. They're always having trouble with travellers. Uh, uh, Mrs. Havre brought Laura, a, a, a young daughter, a pony, and the travellers' horses were always trying to ravish the pony. So <laughs> but Mrs. Havre had to lock all the gates at night and lock all the doors. And, you know, you, you're sort of, you're, as I say, servicing a castle. Right about how he befriends the miners in Durham. Yes, there's a tradition, of course, of prince bishops in Durham, and the bishops of Durham owned most of the mines. But over the, the, the years, they've become a, a, a sort of advocate for the miners, an ambassador for them, and had a good relationship with them. And the miners' gala in Durham was always attended by the bishop. And he, like John, like many of his predecessors, got on well with them. And indeed, in the book, I mention how during the miners' strike in at the end of 73-74, the Durham miners came to John at Auckland Castle and said, we can fix this. Arthur Scargill's too radical, we can fix this, we can talk to Edward Heath and, and fix it and get back to work. And John Habgood rang 10 Downing Street immediately. Uh, the Prime Minister wasn't there, but Sir Humphrey Appleby, as it were, was, and said, oh, I'll, I'll pass this on to the Prime Minister. But the next thing John knew, Heath was going to the country and, and lost. Um, and he thought, oh, well, Edward Heath just didn't want to, to be bothered by this. But a couple of years later, he, he mentioned it again to Edward Heath, and Edward Heath said he'd never got the message. But I think John Habgood could have saved Edward Heath's government and spared us Margaret Thatcher, as well as the Lib Lab Pact. <laughs> there's, there's a quite a moving passage in the book where I think one of the miners, he's meeting them and they just ask for a blessing. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's... Durham Diocese is a strong diocese, quite Anglo-Catholic really, or was then, and, and, and very faithful people in parishes with their parish priests. They just adored the Bishop of Durham and had, had sort of strong relationships with various bishops of Durham for a century and trusted them and, and yeah, their life in their hands really. I just, I just, it comes through in his time in Durham, but throughout the book is, is John's shyness. He described him as a very shy man who had episcopacy thrust upon him in what is essentially a shy church. In one sense, his whole life and outlook were a rationale for being shy. <laughs> yes. And there's also a sort of um, sometimes a sense of imposter syndrome, which reminded me of, of Archbishop Welby's comments about that as well, where I think when you were his chaplain, you asked him after a parish occasion, you know, how did that go? And he said, chiefly, I've managed to get away with it and pull the wool over their eyes yet again. I mean, do you think that was genuinely felt or was it sort of self-deprecating charm that some people have? I, I think it was genuinely felt. His father was a doctor, his daughter was a doctor. In a slight way, he was a sort of doctor out of water in a different context, really. And so there was that part of the imposter syndrome. 
he certainly didn't dither, um, so it wasn't that sort of element. He, he often knew his own mind and led very strongly, but he listened well. And then, having listened, would come up with a solution which everybody wished they'd thought of in the first place and immediately rallied round. But he, he was acutely shy, and I don't think he found he found big talk easy, small talk not so easy, and his silences could be formidable, and not just from his point of view, but from you know your point of view as well, because you realise what a genius he was. As I say in the book, he was sort of giga to my kilo in terms of brain power, and and it sort of made you, it sort of silenced you as well. And there's all sorts of. He interviewed George Carey for to be a vicar in in Durham city centre, and I think George Carey was so daunted by his silence, <laughs> he just dried up as well. Um, I think he had a machine in his chest which emitted invisible rays which sort of scrambled your own brain and so that's how he sort of managed. But yeah, people deal, you know, there's a lot of shy people about I'm shy too and people deal with that in different ways and he had a strategy for, for dealing with it. But he was shy and that comes at a cost having to perform so publicly. And just sort of, I mean, could talk a lot more about Durham, but moving on from Durham, um, June 1983, another letter arrives from another Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher. Indeed. And to York, yes, because he had a chequered relationship with Mrs. Thatcher and he should have gone to, to be Bishop of London in 1980. He was the preferred candidate of the nomination commission. But Mrs. Thatcher, um, lent on by others, preferred the second candidate, who was Graham Leonard. And so there was a lot of controversy in the Church Times. The Church Times covered mm. that masterly. Um, a lot of controversy as to why the preferred candidate was not made Bishop of, of London. But then Mrs Thatcher said in 1983 she was saving him up for York oh. <laughs> and, and came to his enthronement. It was quite rare to have a, a, a Prime Minister at the enthronement of an Archbishop of York and awarded him 11 out of 10 for his enthronement sermon. But John Habgood always said he didn't think she'd understood it. <laughs> <laughs> was that the first time a Prime Minister had come to a enthronement of an Archbishop of York? Yes, I haven't got any record of it, it happening at other times. Usually, of course, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury where the Prime Minister yeah. be present. But to come up to York with her appointments advisor, so she sort of hogged the front row and the family were pushed to the end. Um, but there she was. And um, they even had somebody throw themselves in front of the Archbishop's car thinking it was Mrs Thatcher's car. So it was... Uh, quite an enthronement. <laughs> and there's also the matter of his successor at Durham um, and he, he absented himself didn't he from the Crown Nominations Commission for that and Robert Runcie replaced him. I think you write that he, Runcie bold, have yes. something of a googly in who his um, successor at Durham was, uh, David Jenkins. Yes I think John Habgood didn't want to influence the, the appointment because he felt you know, it's, um, once you've left the diocese you shouldn't sort of interfere uh, but with hindsight I think he felt he should have been chair because the Archbishop of York normally chairs the mm. board for a diocese in the northern province. And with hindsight, I think he felt he should have chaired that. He was happy with the David Jenkins appointment and supported him, but David Jenkins sort of hit the media big time and um, caused quite a stir, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. And couldn't have been more different from John Habgood in sort of temperament and, and personality. Yeah, I think John said, you know, David Jenkins was a professor and a lecturer, but John Habgood felt that sometimes things said in the lecture hall had to be said more carefully for general consumption. And 
I think David Jenkins was, was quite a, a tinker really in, in, in sort of stirring up the media and stirring up the government and describing the head of the coal board as a geriatric American. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going to go down well. And then, I mean, John comes to his defence, doesn't he, when the media perhaps misreport David Jenkins' yeah. comments on, on the virgin birth and the resurrection, and John refuses to play that game to some extent. That's right. There was a sort of petition against David Jenkins being consecrated, and John Habgood carefully considered that, but said, no, this is somebody who is faithful, who is subscribing to the 39 articles and, and the creeds, etc., and there's no reason why I cannot conse consecrate. So went ahead. Uh, but there's, I think there's 12,000 signatures, and the bloke brought the, you know, the sort of uh, petition to Bishopthorpe. And so it was carefully considered, but the consecration went ahead, followed a few days later by the fire. <laughs> Indeed, which some took to be uh, God's judgment Indeed. on the whole thing. Yes. But, but John was obviously having none of that sort of theology. No, no. I, th I think intervention is an interesting subject and it's probably not the time to discuss it at length and I, I think some people believe God intervenes all the time other people believe he doesn't intervene at all and some thinks he think he intervenes occasionally but John felt that this was not you know I suppose if God was trying to show his displeasure he missed it by five days <laughs> and um, yeah why no lightning strikes on Downing Street and then there's a, a sort of one of the most significant episodes, I guess, of his time at York, and, and the most tragic was the the case of the, the Crockford's preface. Yes, indeed. It was, you know, a long time ago. We're talking, what, over 30, 30 years, aren't we? And the, the Crockford's was the clerical, clerical directory, which was published every other year. Uh, the tradition was to have an anonymous preface. But in the 1980s, the publication came under the auspices of Church House Publishing. So it was a sort of in-house publication, but had this anonymous preface, which could be critical of the regime. And boy, was Gary Bennett uh, critical of it in that preface. And the media got hold of it and sort of picked up on the criticism of Robert Runcie, really. And, and John Habgood leapt to Runcie's defence and, and said that uh, the writer was just a sort of disappointed and splenetic cleric and then the hunt was to find the anonymous writer and in the middle of all that sadly Gary Bennett committed suicide and so you had a, a different story. Do you think it's clear whether John Habgood knew who the author was? When no, he I, I think as I say I don't do too much of a plot spoiler but I think it felt, he felt very strongly it was somebody else uh, who could take, could give out the criticism as well as take criticism so was not worried about being critical about the writer and felt it was just a cut and thrust of, of debate and didn't realise it was Gary Bennett, who was a very able person, but obviously far more vulnerable and, and couldn't cope with the, the media spotlight, which was massive, massive. Mm -hmm. Everyone was looking for the writer. And um, I think John Habgood was deeply, deeply upset and horrified by the outcome and resolved to to try and mend fences and that started his he appointed George Austin as Archdeacon of York who was a leading Anglo-Catholic and critic of him uh, just to try and reconcile uh, to bring liberals and, and traditionalists together. And I mean that really comes through in in John's work on the leading role in the act of synod after the women priest measure passes to accommodate um, Anglo-Catholics in particular. Yeah, I suppose it was in the 1992-1993, it was the Church of England's Brexit, and, and John had the job of solving it, 
I, you know, people were very, very enthusiastic about women being ordained, as I was. I was director of ordinance, dealing with uh, men and women candidates. And so, hooray, Synod has passed the, passed the measure. Uh, we can ordain women. But of course, you had a sizable minority who were against their ordination. And most of Parliament were wanting to make sure that that minority was protected and would not have passed the, the necessary acts had that not had that protection not been in place. So people might criticise the act of single but it was a necessary uh, piece of legislation. I mean, and John had always been a supporter in principle of, of women priests, I suppose, but his wife, um, <laughs> not at all. And indeed, you say in the book that, which is it the case she more or less wouldn't have the women <laughs> being ordained in the northern province to stay at Bishopthorpe. They had to stay yeah. in a centre down the road. His wife, Rosalie, was a musician, a uh, absolutely brilliant pianist and violinist and, and a wonderful woman, very entertaining. But she was very much opposed to the ordination of women. And and she runs, once wrote a letter to the Times about, because uh, Bishopthorpe is by the River Ouse, and we were being bothered by an invasion of mink who were uh, attacked because she was a, a sort of looked after the gardens very well and was very protective of birds' eggs. And these mink were taking the birds' eggs. So she got her shotgun out and shot them and wrote to the Times saying she'd shot all these mink uh, which were not not a you know they were not an indigenous species, and she was going to see them off. And it was a funny letter to write to the Times. But if you replaced mink with women priests, it sort of caught her exactly. But fortunately, no women priest was shot by her. But we we kept them at a safe distance. And um, meetings we tended to have at the retreat house. We had their their ordination retreat, and the ordination charge was at the retreat house rather than at Bishopthorpe. And we did not tell Rosalie where we were going when we went out there. Backtracking. A well, a, a year or two, I suppose, um, early 90s, when Robert Runcie retires. And obviously, John Habka's name must have been a leading contender for Canterbury by this stage. Yeah, I don't know what happened, because obviously the Crown Nominations Commission is confidential. And I did check with Downing Street whether they could give me any, any particular steer, but they wouldn't. And uh, so it's conspiracy theories are rife, really. I think John was a candidate who was head and shoulders above the rest, and even George Carey admits that. Um, and so why he wasn't preferred, I, I don't know. As I say, his his relationship with Mrs Thatcher was, was checkered, and she was the one who appointed at that stage, just prior to her own resignation and, and retirement. Um, we'd had the Church Urban Fund and Church in the Faith in the City reports, which I think the Church of England effectively was the, the opposition in those days, and maybe she'd found John a bit irksome. I think she admired his intellect, but then was sort of disturbed by it when it criticised her and her regime. So maybe nothing more than that. I think the, the Crockford's preface certainly disturbed people, but John proved good after that and, and, and was so keen to reconcile them. I think the traditionalists found him their champion, but... Um, who knows? It's it's a delicious, you know, I think people have dined out for years on what happened in 1990. And um, anybody's theory is as good as anybody else's, really. <laughs> and, and you were his chaplain, I think, was it from 91 to 95? Yes, until yeah. then. Um, did you get any sense from him in the conversations you had as to whether he would have liked to have been Archbishop of Canterbury? I think those around him thought he should have been, you know, the best Archbishop of Canterbury we never had. I think speaking to him both about the London appointment when he didn't get that and and Canterbury he felt the angel of death had passed over him and that he was 
better at York. He had a two hour train journey to the seat of power and was able to think and was better whispering from the ring from the wings rather than being at the sort of center of the stage. And and so I think those around him, including his wife, felt very sad he'd not gone to Canterbury. And he certainly had the leadership qualities uh, to do the job well. But he himself felt, phew. And do you think he and George Carey in particular complemented each other quite well in Canterbury and York? I think so. The press were making mischief and, and they soon got on to the fact that George Carey had only been a bishop just over two two years, etc., etc. But I think there was, yeah, I think he was fond of George Carey. George Carey had been, as I said, vicar in Durham, St Nicholas Durham, done an excellent job there. Um, John Hapgood felt he'd done a very good job at Trinity, uh, Bristol in bringing the college back into the Church of England, as it were. And then uh, in his brief time at Bath and Wells was making very sort of a lot of reconciling noises um, between evangelicals and Catholics, traditionalists and, and radicals, which he was impressed by. At Canterbury, of course, you had the problem with uh, it was a sort of massive financial crisis with the church commissioners, uh, millions, um, and, and he felt George Carey had handled that well and so had respect for him. And then John took the lead with, as you say, the act of synod and um, leading women's ordination. So it was, I thought it was complimentary, um, two very different characters. And um, I think he retired in 1995, is that, is that right? That's right. He'd stayed on an extra year because of the, when the, yeah. he didn't expect the vote in 92 to be in favour of the ordination of women. It was a close run thing. And I think he expected it to fall. He was going to retire in 1994, but stayed on an extra year to get the act of synod going and flying bishops in place and, and women ordained. And did you keep in touch sort of in, in retirement? Yes, he, he retired to Moulton and I stayed on as chaplain for an extra two years with David Hope. And that was a fantastic time. Then I was a vicar quite near Moulton and we kept in touch, um, had meals together. Um, in retirement, he was very relaxed and... I think when he was Archbishop, he'd treat a chaplain as a sort of Victorian father would treat his son, really. Uh, whereas in retirement, it was a far easier relationship. And then, of course, quite a long way down the line, 2005, he asked me to write his biography. So we, we met on a lot of occasions after that. So I'd go for a day and have lunch with them and I'd sit at his feet writing down everything he said. And then how do you think he'll chiefly be remembered? I mean, I think David Hope's quoted in the book as saying, some people see him as, as a liberal, in quotes, but that's, I think, too simplistic, would you say? No, I, and I never saw him as a liberal, really. I think he was a radical, and a radical is somebody who goes to the roots of faith. And when he preached his enthronement sermon in York Minster, he talked about the need for tradition uh, to make sure that, you know, we've got something that's been handed down to us rather than we're just making up on the spot. And so he was very keen on a believing heart, um, balanced with a critical mind. And I think he, he brought the rigour of his scientific research to bear on faith. And he had a high degree of respect for that. And, you know, he served in the House of Lords from his appointment to Durham until his retirement. And then he was um, a Lord after that in retirement. And I, I think people from all faiths and none just highly respected what he had to say. And not just in faith fields, but in, in scientific fields. I think Matthew Paris is, is quoted as saying he was the last Anglican theologian he'd walk down the corridor to, to listen to. Yes, that's right. It's an amazing compliment. And, and I, I picked that up. I think it was just an aside in some 
think it was in the Church Times, actually, so it wasn't mm. a, very, a, comment <laughs> in a very important newspaper. And I picked that up and got in touch with Matthew Paris, and he said, yes, absolutely. And he was very helpful in, in when I was writing the biography. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.